Amen. How thankful we are for our Redeemer's love and for the truths of the words that we've sung in these choruses and hymns. So I trust that you've been encouraged already this morning in our time together. If you have a Bible, we are in the middle of our study in the Minor Prophets. So if you want to take it in turn, we're in the book of Jonah this week, one that's probably more familiar than many of the ones that we've been going through. And as you're turning to Jonah, I wonder how many Awana clubbers we have in here. If you're in Awana, raise your hand. Any Awana clubbers? Oh, they all went out, so no, there are a few left, all right. All right, about a month ago, I was uh, teaching in Awana, and uh, as we were teaching through, I was teaching through the, uh, the ten lepers, and uh, in the Gospels that tell us about these men that Jesus healed, he miraculously healed, and he sent them, them to, to, the, to be examined by the, the priest at the temple, and so the, the point of the story was that there was only one that turned around and came back and sought the greater blessing, which was actually what he received when he came back, was forgiveness for sins. And what I did in order to convey that, or try to teach that at the beginning, was to have the, the leaders in both Truth and Training and Sparks hand out ten suckers. Now, the, the, the way the, the uh, material that I was using, they, they said to start out with these small miniature candy bars. And so we handed those out, and I wanted to ask each of the people to, add, to listen to see if anybody said thank you as you gave it to them. So out of the 20 people in total, how many do you think said thank you? I'm giving them a little credit. They're one, right? One. So, and what they said to do is when, for the person that said thank you, not only did everybody get one of these, but the person that said thank you, you're supposed to give them one of these, right? Come back for the, for the greater blessing as you all salivate over this, right? right? The greater blessing. And so, sadly, I didn't do that because of allergies uh, that people have. Some people are allergic to chocolate in, in, uh, in the Iwana program. But I gave them more candy. And, and the whole point of that was the, the object lesson. Object lessons are meant to take, and we use them in teaching, to take spiritual truths and bring them down to more a concrete or take the abstract and bring it to more of an application that we can understand and apply that then to our lives. And so Jesus often ta- taught in that way. We see that throughout the, the Gospels as he taught through parables and he used uh, concrete terms to define and help the people see more indefinite terms what he was trying to communicate to them. Um, and we see that as well as, we, as we're looking here in the passage, or in the book rather, of Jonah. As we turn into the Old Testament, Jonah's experience serves as an object lesson, an important object lesson not only for the Israelites as they would have read through this, but for us as well this morning. We each need these ideas. We, we, need, we need to understand the scripture. And so oftentimes God uses object lessons, taking well-known objects and connecting it to help us to understand an equally important spiritual truth to make it understandable for us. And we've seen God do this already in the Minor Prophets, if you've been with us. In the first book that we looked at in Hosea, we see God utilizing an object lesson, which was actually Hosea's life. God calls Hosea to marry the woman, Gomer, who would become an immoral woman as an illustration of God's faithful love to Israel in the midst of their ongoing challenge and struggle with sin. And so we see Hosea faithfully pursuing Gomer and bringing her back, even in the midst of her sin. So having said that, the the background, I think, as we look at the book of Jonah, the background of this book is helpful for us to understand why God chose to do this with Jonah. If you've ever watched any of the VeggieTale movies, some of you are maybe familiar with that, VeggieTales, then you know that Jonah was a prophet. Ooh, ooh, ooh. But he never really got it. He never really got it. No, no, no. Right? That's kind of a nice little phrase, but 
and we kind of laugh at it, obviously, maybe my singing you're laughing at, but, but uh, really the focus there, though, is, is on the message of what Jonah is. And as we look at, as we read through, if you've read through the four chapters of Jonah, you know that by the end, we are left with the question, does Jonah really get it? And we're asked, we're, we're asked the, the, the next question to say, do we really get it? Do we really get what the message or what the object lesson of, of, of Jonah really is? And, and, and as we see the sad reality, as Jonah continued on, the challenge for us is, did he really get it at the end? He, he seemed to, but we're left. And this is, it's meant as an object lesson in the flesh for Israel as well, for them to, to be reflecting upon their own heart. So Jonah ministered in, in the time frame of 800 B.C. to 750 B.C., and as we know from our study in these minor prophets, this was during the period during which the nation of Israel had been divided. The north were the ten tribes called Israel. The two tribes in the south were known by the name Judah. And during this time in Israel, the, the ten tribes in the north, they were ruled by King Jeroboam II. Prior to his reign, there were two significant prophecies that were given. One by Elisha and one by Jonah, the gentleman that this book is about regarding this time in which, during which Jeroboam II would rule. Elisha's prophecy is found in 2 Kings chapter 13, where Elisha prophesies regarding the defeat of Israel's foe in Syria and the reestablishment of her northern border. You can see in the north there, obviously you have Aram, but even farther than that you have what we know to become Assyria. This is followed by Jonah's prophecy regarding Jeroboam in 2 Kings chapter 14. Let me just read that for you. It says this, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, so in the south, Judah, Amaziah is reigning during this time, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. So this is here talking about this king, Jeroboam the second. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam. And this is the one that he was named for, who ruled several hundred, uh, a few hundred years before, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel sin. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord and the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was of Gath-Hefer. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, which was very bitter. For there was neither bond nor free, nor was there any helper for Israel. The Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash." So what's, what's happening here is that Jonah's prophecy that he spoke regarding Israel is that they would, under Jeroboam, they would reestablish their northern border and, and retake much of the land that they had lost through various wars and battles that they had fought. So as they experienced this restoration, and what we know over the 41 years that Jeroboam II ruled in Israel, they experienced an economic boom. I mean, not unlike the, here in the U.S. after World War II where, where the economic uh, engine of the U.S., of the, of the American economy, just roared to life. Here in Israel, they experienced fabulous blessings but, and stability. But oftentimes, what happens, what accompanies that is a forsaking of the Lord. And sadly, that's what we see. After these triumphs that Israel begin, they begin to gloat over their newfound blessings and stability... And because of, they, because of the fact that they were relieved of these foreign pressures, relief that had come in accordance with these words that Elisha and Jonah had spoken, she begins to feel, Israel begins to feel very smug and complacent and jealous about her favored status with God. 
And here's where it connects with what we've seen already in the minor prophets. As Israel experienced this blessing over these 41 years, they began to then see and focus their religious expectations on the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And their thinking is that, and their belief, they knew that this was the day when God would bring judgment. But their thought is that this would bring judgment upon those that had inflicted pain on them in years before, and they'd rightly deserve that, the Israelites were saying. And they failed to recognize their own hearts and how quickly they were drifting away from the Lord and trusting not in the Lord but in these blessings that he had provided. So they're, they're, they're looking forward to this day of, of judgment with excitement, with a desire to see we can't wait till God takes away these or, or rather punishes those who have treated us in a negative way and he leaves us uh, to bask in his favor and blessing. We know that this is taking place because of during the same time God sends two of Jonah's contemporaries Amos and Hosea that we've already seen, we've already looked at their books, to announce judgment upon Israel. And just to kind of give you an idea, a reminder, Amos, in chapter 7, verses 7 through 9, God is speaking to him. He says, Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. The Lord said to me, What do you see, Amos? And I said, A plumb line? Then the Lord said, Behold, I am about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people, Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be desolated, and the sanctuaries of Israel laid waste. Then I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Here, here, through Amos, we see God speaking. No, no, this day of the Lord is actually going to be a loss for you too, because you've forsaken me. In your affluence, in your blessing, in the blessings that I've given, you have forsaken me. You've gone after idols and forgotten me. Hosea becomes even clearer. He says, They will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria, he will be their king because they refuse to return to me. So here God brings these verbal warnings to the prophets of Hosea and Amos to Israel to warn them to say, right, wake up, turn around, come back. But he doesn't stop there because we have not only a verbal warning, but we have this visual warning found in the life of Jonah. And his, in this snapshot of his life as God comes to him and his response to that. Because in many ways what we see happening here is this, this again, it's an object lesson in the flesh for the Israelites to hear, and not just hear, but to see. As they read of this story, as they experience, as they see what's taken place with Jonah, because they knew who he was, he had already given a uh, prophetic word from God. But here we see what's happening here is that God uses Jonah as an object lesson for all of Israel, and his life and actions are meant to do three things, I think. To remind Israel and to remind us of God's true character, to provoke repentance, in Israel, that she might heed the prophet's call. So God is wanting to use Jonah and his life and his responses to what God is telling him to do as an object lesson to challenge the Israelites, to remind them of God's true character, to provoke repentance in Israel that she might heed the prophet's call, and then lastly, to restore her to her missionary role. So we're gonna, I'm going to read, obviously we're not going to go through all the book, I'm going to read through all four chapters, but I'm going to read some selected passages here. So I would ask that you join me in standing as we honor the reading of God's word this morning. Jonah 1, 1. And just be reminded that, that Jonah is divided up really in two parts. You have chapters 1 and 2 and then two and th- or 3 and 4. 
So I'm just read some, some verses here. Jonah 1, 1 through 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the, the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jump forward then to chapter, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. This time Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. We have at the end then 4, 9 through 11. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reasons to be angry, with, uh, angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. And the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? Let's pray together as we ask God to go before us in our time together. Father, we cry out to you this morning, expressing our need for you to walk us through this passage. Lord, on my part, confessing my feeble attempts at trying to lead your people. We're thankful, Lord, that that your spirit is awakening the hearts and minds of your people, energizing them to be able to see and understand what your word says. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity you've given us this morning to gather in in accordance to your will for us, knowing that from Hebrews chapter 10, that you desire us to gather together. We praise you, Lord, for the fruit that you'll produce through our time, not only this morning, but as you bring to mind these truths moving forward, this object lesson in the flesh, not only for Israel, but for us, that we would heed your word for your glory and your name. Amen. You may be seated. So before we jump into this, kind of looking at these points that I think the object lesson is serving, let me just tell the story of what Jonah is. We see at the beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1, we're introduced to Jonah as he receives this directive from God as a prophet to take this warning of impending judgment from God to the city called Nineveh, which, would be, which was the capital city of Assyria. As we read through this in verses 1 and 2, we have the abrupt response then in verse 3 of, of instead of obeying the Lord, Jonah chooses to instead head in the opposite direction to get as far away from the Ninevites as possible. But verse 4, God has other plans. As he brings this great storm upon the ship and the crew are deathly afraid, so in order to find out who the culprit is, who's causing the gods, lowercase g, that they worship, who are really not gods, obviously, and have no power, to be angry, they cast lots. And we're told that the lot falls to Jonah by the will of God. And our, and our, after sharing that he's a Jew, serving the, the, the creator God, Jonah instructs them to throw him overboard in order to calm the sea. Well, they attempt in response to this to, to pursue every other solution which doesn't work. And so then they offer this sacrifice to the true and living God whom Jonah serves in order to absolve themselves of the guilt of this man's what they thought would be his death. Ultimately, they do cast them overboard, and we see that at the end of that, the sea is calmed once he is over, overboard. 
Now chapter 2 then is the beginning, at the beginning, this, this account at the very beginning of chapter 2 is the section that many who, who probably don't know much about the Bible, they're most familiar with this, because it's here we see that God directs a large fish to swallow Jonah whole. And it's, it's while in the stomach of the fish that Jonah repents and re- recommits himself to obeying the Lord, which then we see at the very end of, of chapter 2, God instructing this large fish to vomit Jonah back onto dry ground. Chapter 3 has him going to Nineveh and proclaiming the message that God had instructed him to bring in the first place, this warning of judgment. And the response in the town is nothing short of amazing as he goes and obeys. The text tells us that they believe in God and back up that belief with acts of repentance and obedience, and the Lord removes the judgment he had placed, I'm sorry, that he had planned to bring upon them. Chapter 4 then contains the response that this act of contrition and repentance on the part of the citizens of Nineveh the response that it elicits from Jonah. So, what I want us to do is just spend some time looking again at this, at this book from the perspective of seeing this as, as Jonah being an object lesson for all Israel to remind her of God's true character, to provoke repentance in Israel, and to restore not only Jonah but her to obedience and to his word. So, let's look here at, at part one as we think about this wake-up call Regarding God's true character, verses 1 and 2, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Jonah needed to be reminded that God is faithful to warn his enemies. He is faithful to bring warning to them. And here Jonah was meant to be part of that process of bringing warning. Verse 1, God is clear in the instruction he gives to Jonah to go and warn the people of Nineveh this capital city, of their impending judgment because their wickedness had come up before God. God is faithful to warn. We see even his faithfulness displayed in the New Testament. If you look in Romans chapter 1, we see this reminder where Paul tells us that, that God has given all of us the witness of creation and the witness of conscience. The witness of creation witnesses that, that God exists, that this didn't just happen by chance, that no matter how much you want to try to believe evolution, that it doesn't work. It doesn't, it, it, as you look around us, there are too many evidences that reflect the fact that there had to be a designer and a creator. There is the conscience that also witnesses that we're not perfect morally, that, that something is wrong with us. We don't follow through on the commitments that we make. There is, there is the conscience that's there, this God-given witness But in this story, we see that God doesn't limit himself to just these two witnesses of warning enemies of his. And so here we see him using Jonah. He uses not only the witness of creation and conscience, but he uses individuals like Jonah to warn. Now what's interesting is from extra-biblical sources, we know that God has already been at work in preparing this people. Because in... History, history tells us that two plagues had erupted near Nineveh in 765 and 759 B.C. And a total eclipse of the sun had occurred on June 15, 763 B.C. They would have considered these signs of divine anger as they would have witnessed, as, as the witness of creation and their own creation of, of religious gods. They would, have, they would have viewed those as being angry. And so God would have used those to, to continue to prepare them for Jonah's arrival, probably, possibly, around 759 B.C. God is faithful to warn. He is faithful to prepare. He is faithful to bring a witness to them. With your Jonah, 
need to be reminded of that. We see God's character being displayed and reaffirmed that he is faithful to warn his enemies and, and call them to turn back. That's what we see him doing in the minor prophets as well to the Israelites to turn back away from your wicked ways. He is also faithful to witness to his wayward children. Verse 3, but Jonah rose up and fled to Tarshish. This is, this is the farthest place that he could go away from. If you think about, if this is Israel, and is, I'm not going to go back to the, the map, but you see in the, the northeast of Israel is where Assyria would have been, where he would have been called to go, and he would have gone as far west as he could, possibly in the area of Spain. And God witnessed to Jonah that that he shouldn't, I think it's important here, God witnessed to Jonah that he shouldn't equate open door circumstances with God's stamp of approval on his actions. I was reminded of that just even this week on the radio as I was driving into work. I heard that a couple, I think up in Minnesota maybe, they found in a shopping cart $9,800, right in an envelope, along with a checkbook from a company. Now, they could have just taken the money out and kept it to say, wow, look at God's blessing. I mean, who couldn't use $9,800, right? I had to say, wow, God, we got clear, clearly have needs. Here's God's providing for us. We'll, we'll return the checkbook because I don't want to be convicted of check fraud, but, but we will keep the money because, wow, God clearly opened this door for us. We know that's not the case, right? The, the woman who called in to say, have you found my money? There was the, the day's receipts from the company that she worked for, obviously along with the, the checkbook there, so they knew whose it was. But here Jonah, as he's coming to the port city on the coast of Israel, what does he find? He's wanting to flee to Joppa. Uh, he flees to Joppa, and what does he find? He finds a ship ready to go to the place where he wants to go. That's the farthest away. God's opened a door for me. Yes, and I've got enough money to be able to pay for this long cruise Just enough. He's able to fork it over and get a ticket. And we know that he's so calm that once he boards the ship, he goes down into the hull and falls into a deep sleep so deep that he doesn't even wake up when we have, when when weather that's, that's so violent erupts. Clearly, God is opening the door and doesn't care. You know, he's, he's blessing me. He's allowing me to go this way. Here, here God is witnessing and reminding uh, Jonah that open doors don't always, as open doors of circumstances don't always equate to God's stamp of approval because he's already told them, told Jonah what he wants to do, and he's also told us, if we found this money, has not God said, don't steal? We already know God's will. It's not yours. In fact, with the checkbook there, you know who is it? You know whose it is. If we were those people who found the money, Jonah was no different. He knew what God was wanting him to do. The question was, was he willing to submit to it? And here it's a reminder, it's a wake-up call regarding God's true character for Jonah, but for Israel as well. God had told Israel what he wanted them to do as well. So God witnessed to Jonah that, that you can run, but you can't hide. Chapter 1, verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so the ship was about to break up. God begins to call to Jonah. What's amazing here is that everything in nature obeys God, right? The storm, the people, except his prophet. He's fast asleep in the hole. He has no concern for the danger his actions have placed those around him in. He's, he's just content to make it as far away from Nineveh as, Nineveh as possible. All he's thinking about is himself. The crew are pay, praying to their false gods, right? I'm going to pray to this, this, this lectern. Please, please. I mean, there's no effect, right? It's foolishness. 
And the guy, the one guy on the ship who does know the true and living God, who can answer, he's sleeping. When he finally wakes up, Jonah completely misses the opportunity that he has with these men who are fruitlessly calling out to their gods. I mean, think about how different this story could have been if Jonah, under the conviction of the circumstances that he's experiencing, falls to his knees and confesses his sin and forsakes his way and says, Lord, please forgive me, and then has an opportunity to witness these guys to say, I've, I've totally blown it, guys. This is the true and living God that I should have been serving, that I have served in the past, but because of my own sin and selfishness, I've forsaken God. I've, I've chosen to, to in, my, in my sin, place you in this dire strait as well. But that's not what happens here. Instead, Jonah says, just toss me over. I'm willing to die. I, I, I hate those people in Nineveh so much that I'd rather die than go to them. Here's the reality. Jonah actually is a racist. He's a racist. He's an he's a 800 B.C. racist because he could care less about that. He's, he wants to die before he would go and tell those people about, about God. He, he lived in northern Israel, so he would have been well aware of what these people would have done, how, how nasty they were. How, how vicious and, and just savage they were in, in, in abusing people. And so thereby he justifies, well, you know what, I, I'm going to stand in judgment upon God and say, I know what's better here. Just throw me overboard. It is a sad illustration and commentary on the state of Israel, Israel's spiritual condition. Because again, Jonah is an object lesson for the condition of what Israel, where they were spiritually. And so these men are, are very hesitant to do this, and they actually then uh, make sacrifice to God, the true and living God. Now, I don't think this means that they're, they're, they now are following after God. It's just, well, we're going to throw him on the, other, uh, the, the wagon of other gods that we serve. But at least they are seeking to respond to what's happening here. Jonah's just saying, no, I'm going to just throw me overboard. The, the sea will calm, but I'm going to die. Chapter 1, verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. God says, no, I'm not done with you yet. And here in this, we see then the second section, a provoking of repentance. God is wanting in chapter 2 to provoke a repentance in the heart of Jonah. Because he's also wanting to provoke a repentance in Israel, and he's wanting to provoke a repentance in us. Right? That's why we have these four chapters here, to provoke a repentance in our hearts as well. Chapter 2, verse 1, that Jonah prayed to the Lord, God, the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice, for you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever, but you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Verse 8, those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Now some believe that, that Jonah died and that he experienced here a resurrection in the belly of the whale. I don't think that's what happened because Jonah here is a type of Christ and a type is always pointing to, pointing forward to 
a partial, it's a partial fulfillment of what the, what the greater is. And in this case, if he died and was resurrected, he'd be equal to what Jesus, Jesus experienced. So I don't think that's what happened here. Instead, we see Jonah drawing on several quotes from David in the Psalms. And we know David didn't die and was resurrected. So, so here, I think what's happening here is that it's a reflection of the severity of the situation that Jonah had experienced. He's in the, he's in the belly of a, of a fish, clinging to life, knowing that he deserves God's punishment and wrath. And at that point, he cries out to God, Save me. And God does. Now, what's interesting is we look here at Jonah. I want you to see that I think Jonah is the Old Testament account or, or version of the prodigal sons, plural. Because here we see Jonah similar. This, what, he, what he has here is similar to what we see happening with the prodigal, the younger son, as, he's, as he leaves, forsakes his, his father and goes and takes it and squanders his riches on immoral living. But then he comes to himself. He, it's the goodness of God that, that brings about this repentance. And here too we see De, uh, Jonah rather reflecting upon the goodness of God. Jonah is given this wake-up call regarding God's true character as he experiences God's faithfulness, his patience, his grace, and his mercy as he foolishly says, I'm going to go my own way. And so in the midst of this great sin, we see him calling out to God to save him. And God graciously answers that call, and he gives him then a reminder of his God-given role. We see that in in chapter 2, verse 10. Then the Lord commanded the fish... And it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. Now he says, here's where, now, come back, fulfill the role that I gave you, Jonah. Don't substitute your wisdom for what I have called you to do. And so God redirects him and moves him then back toward Nineveh. Which is where we see then, in chapters 3 and 4 then, part 2 of this story, where we see Jonah living now a fulfillment of his God-given role. We see him fulfilling that. Verses 3 and 4 of chapter 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city, one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. So here, he, he, in obedience to God, he proclaims the message of judgment to this people that's known throughout the world, as I said, for their wickedness and savagery. He would have lived in the north, so he would have been, I'm sure, very familiar with them. But what's interesting here to look at is it says in verse 3 that, is, that this city was an exceedingly great city at three days' walk. Verse 4 tells us that he only walked one day. Now, it might be, because we know after that, that the people start responding. That maybe he walks one day and they start responding, so he stops. Chapter 4 might mean that he, he might still be struggling with obeying what God has called him to do. Did he begin and then stop? The text doesn't totally tell us here. It's not totally clear. 
But the reminder, I think, as Jonah is going and fulfilling this, the, the fulfillment of, God given, of the God-given role that God had given to Israel, and here in, in Isaiah chapter 42, we see him speaking to his servant, but I think ultimately you could expand this purpose that God has for his servant, his suffering servant, as well as, as Israel, is that, that they would be a people... Verse 6, I am the Lord, I called you in righteousness, I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Part of the role, the God-given role that God had given to Israel was that they would be a witness to the nations. To open blind eyes. That the nations would see their relationship with God, the true and living God, the creator of all things, the God above every other false God that man creates, in order to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from prison. This is the mission that God had called Israel to fulfill. To tell others about this wonderful God who had brought the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt, this God who had brought them into the promised land and fought for them, But instead, like Jonah on the ship, became callous, they became callous in their hearts and twisted the teaching of the law to mean that all the unclean nations around them were rightly deserving of punishment and they shouldn't even have any witness to them. And in fact, not only not witness, but instead to call down fire upon them because of their sin, all the while forgetting their own sin. And so, what do we see happening with Jonah? Well, we see another provoking of repentance. God's message is proclaimed, but this time the provoking of repentance is on the part of the Ninevites. Verse 5 of chapter 3, Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Here we see this provoking of repentance. As as Jonah brings this message, the people respond, verse 5. The king responds in verse 6. This decree describes the extent of the repentance from 7 through 9. Applying to beast and man, no eating, drinking, everyone covered with sackcloth and prayers of repentance being offered up to God. Here we have a second rebuke upon Israel by a Gentile nation for Israel's unwillingness to repent of her sinful ways. Jonah 3.10, when God saw their deeds that they had turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. This shouldn't have been new to Israel because they received this same message from Jonah, or from Joel, rather. Joel chapter 2, we've already looked through this, but Joel 2, 12 and 13. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Come back and with fasting, weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. I don't want this, this out, external going through the motions. Rend your heart and return to me, the Lord your God, for I am gracious and compassionate. I am slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. This should sound familiar because verse 13 of what we have in Joel is basically what, jo- what Jonah says in chapter 4, verse 2. 
He prayed to the Lord and said, after he sees this taking place, Please, Lord, was, this, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Now, I said that, that I think Jonah is the Old Testament version of the prodigal sons, because on the one hand, Jonah does display the attitude of the younger son, but in chapter 4, we have the attitude of the older to say, God, what are you doing? Why, why, are you, why would you ever? I knew you were going to do this. You are gracious and compassionate. But these nasty sinners deserve your, your wrath, your punishment. Just like the older brother. Father, why did you treat him like this? He deserves punishment. He, why would you let him embarrass you like this? And so in this, the object lesson again for the Israelites is that they, they need this gracious and compassionate God. They, they need this God who is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. This one who calls them to rend their garments and not just their hearts. He's calling to us as well. To say, I don't, I don't want your just external, going through the motion, coming to church, playing the part of a Christian. But you forsake me throughout the week. Is there, is there ever a, 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 a provoking of repentance in your heart outside of Sunday morning? Is there a concern to say, Lord, I, I, I want to be fulfilling the role and purpose for which you have saved me. That I would be in relationship with you and walking with you, daily uh, interacting with you, seeking to follow you in obedience to what your word says. Loving you in tangible ways as I love others. So we see this, this wake-up call regarding God's true character. We see a provoking of repentance in the Ninevites. And we see then lastly, I think, a reminder of God's character and purpose for his people. Chapter 4 is this, this response, this calling of Jonah to respond and to see his own arrogance his own racism, his own hatred of these people. Micah 6.8, we'll see next week. Micah 6.8, he has told you, O man, what is good and what it does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. God's mercy is not limited to those to whom we deem it being acceptable. That's part of the lesson I think that Jonah and the Israelites needed to learn. We saw this even last week from the book of Obadiah. Obadiah is, is a messenger sent not to Israel or to Judah, but sent to the Edomites. And this is a message that Jonah needed to learn. Here we're reminded that our spiritual growth, it's a daily practice where we all have blind spots which require daily remedial training through the work of the Spirit in concert with His Word to be putting off sin and, and changing in our thinking so that we might live in light of the truth of God. Look how God is merciful to Jonah here in chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, where he brings this, this plant to grow. And Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it, sulking, you could say. He's there, made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen to in the city. He's wanting this judgment to happen. So the Lord God appointed a plant and grew up over him, over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his dis discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching heat east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. 
Verse 9, then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry? And he repeats this. If you see back in, in chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 4, the Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? For how I am treating these Ninevites? Jonah is having more compassion on a plant. Right Again, it's a reflection of his own sinfulness, of his own selfishness. He could care less about these people. He cares more about a plant than he does about God and the work that God is doing. Verse 10, Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand? Right, Thinking here of, of young people. There's 120,000 young people who don't know the right from left. Now you have this great city of people. Jonah, do you share the heart that I have for sinners? I want them to come and repent and follow after me. Are you broken over that, Jonah? ABC, are are we broken over the hearts of those around us in this community who don't know Christ? So how, how are we responding, then the last point, how, how are we responding to the circumstance God is bringing into our lives to remind us of his character, to provoke us to repentance and restore us to obedience to his word, of his word? To think about, you know, am I, in, my, in my interaction with God, am I acting as with the attitude and the heart of, of, the younger, of the younger brother as he comes back in repentance before his father? Or am I acting like the elder brother? in arrogance, in judgment upon God, in deciding who it is that I'm going to take the gospel to. I mean, Jonah is a, it is a, it's an object lesson for the, to expose the condition of the heart of Israel, their spiritual condition, and it's also an object lesson for us. Now, certainly it's a, it's a reprieve in the, in the 12 minor prophets. This is a story, so it's easier to understand than, than line upon line of judgment, right? We'll get back to that next week. Uh, if you're missing it. So, so here we have this, this story that we can, this object lesson for us to say, Lord, how am I Jonah? And convict me, Lord, I, I need to change by the power of your spirit. So if you have a response card, if you have a bulletin, you should have a response card, that 3 by 5 card in your bulletin. Let me ask you, encourage you to pull that out. Because in it, it has, on the front of it, where you can put your name, provides us an opportunity to send you a gift of thanks for your time with us this morning through the mail. But on the back, it has some suggested responses to what you've heard this morning. First is this, pray for me as I confess as sin the ways in which my heart at times practices a form of of racism toward people of a different skin color or political party or economic status and instead see all of them as being, I I need to see them as being in need of confessing Christ as their Savior and Lord, that, that that really is their greatest need and that everybody needs that. Pray for me as I, secondly, pray for me as I commit this week to reading through the book of Jonah four times and especially reflecting upon chapter 4 and my attitude toward God's work in my life. Lastly, maybe you're here this morning and you just you have questions about how, about Christ, about Christianity, about salvation. This last circle is for you. That, that if you check that and drop it in the offering plate, I'd be happy to talk with you later to help you understand how you can know forgiveness for your sin. I'm going to pray and we'll have one final song. I would encourage you to be meditating. Lord, how, how do you want me to respond? You can drop the card in the offering plate as it goes by. We're thankful you're here this morning and we just pray for us as we close. Father, how, how challenging and convicting is the book of Jonah. 
Lord, we recognize that the other, the other books in, these, in this series of minor prophets are bringing ver- a very heavy message to the people of Israel and Judah. Lord, one that, that we need to hear as well. But as we see in the life of Jonah, it's easier at times to see a picture because that communicates in, in, at a, such a different level which is why we use object lessons. So we thank you, Lord, for this object lesson. I pray that you would bring about the fruit that needs to happen, the change that needs to happen in our lives as we reflect upon it in your name. Amen.